Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone. So great to have you all here again today, listening either live or on the podcast. I just love all you listeners and everything that you've been saying and telling us about the podcast and for keeping us up on iTunes as a top podcast. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And today I have, you know, I always say I have a special guest, but this person is really extra special to me because if it wasn't for my guest, I don't think my mom would be with me today in the condition that she's in. And I'm so excited that she has agreed to be on the show because this is not something she ever does. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about her. So Patricia Draper, or Pat, as I know her, was born in Seattle, Washington. She lived in California until the age of five and then moved to western New York, which had to be total culture shock after southern California. She got her Bachelor of Nursing from the University of Mississippi School of Nursing with honors. And she's been here in Vero Beach since 1978, working at Indian River Medical Center, Um, Back when it was Indian River Memorial Hospital, she's been a nurse there. And in 1992, she got her ARNP, which um, is a um, much higher certification for nurses. We're going to talk all about that and define all that in a little bit. And she's started doing triathlons at the age of 53. I mean, it is just so cool. But one of the reasons that Pat is here today is because she runs, she, she heads up the heart Um, congestive heart failure clinic at the hospital along with Dr. Richard Moore at the hospital. And on a daily basis, she helps people who have congestive heart failure live amazing lives. And as you all know, my mom suffers from congestive heart failure and a few other things. And Pat has just been really instrumental in helping me navigate that entire process. So she's going to be sharing some tips for those of you listening who may have family members or yourselves may be having congestive heart failure, but we're also going to be talking about her journey in the healthcare profession as a nurse and as a triathlete and a mom and so many different things and a dear friend. And she's an awesome mom and an awesome dog owner, Boston Terrier and grandma. So please welcome Pat Draper to the show. Oh, thank you for that wonderful introduction, Laura. I am thrilled to be here. And one of the things I'd like to add to that um, in terms of culture shock, <laughs> believe me, going from Western to New York State to Mississippi was a culture shock like no other. But um, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm very pleased to be here and thrilled to be speaking to your radio audience about heart failure and about my journey, which has brought me to this point today. Now, you know, it was funny because you were mouthing because you're actually in my studio, which is so much fun to have actually a guest in the studio. I often have remote guests. You're mouthing, don't forget grandma, don't forget grandma. And I just never think of you as being old enough <laughs> to be a grandma. <laughs> so thank you for oh, that Oh, you're reminder. so sweet. You're so sweet. They are in California and they're little ones, but it's totally re-energized me. I mean, I think that's what the universe gives you when you're this age, um, little ones again, to totally see the magic in everything as they're discovering it. I love that. I love that. Now, your journey, I mean, what brought you to nursing? When I was 16 years old, I applied for an American Field Service scholarship. Um, There were a lot of 
issues in my home at that situation, and it, it was not a u- typical situation. It was rather chaotic. My sister had left home to get married at that time, and I just felt that I needed a way out. And my grandfather, who lived in Vero at the time, reviewed my um, application and my desire to do this, and after it was approved, he helped sp- sponsor me to live in South America for a year, and it was life-changing for me. I lived down in a little pueblo called Yayay, which is between... Yayay? Yayay, double L-A-Y hyphen double L-A-Y. It's a little pueblo between Santiago, the capital of Chile, and Valparaiso, the coastal town, which is a port. And I lived there for a year with a pharmacist and his family. And I did volunteer work at the hospital there. And it was the last year that Salvador Allende was in office, the socialist who was a democratic socialist that was elected. And it was transformative to see people in another culture and also see what um, that healthcare system was like. And I didn't have much interaction with physicians at the hospital, but I did see the one nurse that they had who had a big old basket that she carried full of dressings and medicines and hypodermics and whatnot. And she went around from bed to bed and from ward to ward taking care of the patients. And I thought, that's pretty cool. I think I'd like to do that. And that started your journey was this moment. Exactly. I thought I could do that because I didn't have a good strong background in sciences and math, and I was afraid that I would be behind the eight ball if I tried to study medicine. But I thought, I, I think I can do nursing. So Well, I personally so think you could be a doctor. Well, <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I, would, I would do anything to help you do that if you ever decided you want to go to that next level. But I'm thrilled to be a nurse practitioner because I think that in many ways nurses are the invisible force in healthcare today. And I think that as nurse practitioners, we are the advanced practice arm of nursing that can really give a voice to the profession and help patients and their families understand what the profession is all about and how we can um, not only describe healthcare concerns for our patients, but we can educate the public about what needs to be done and what laws need to be changed. I can tell you from personal experience that if it wasn't for nurses and nurse practitioners, I'm not sure that a lot of my family members would have gotten the care they had gotten because you see it at a different level than a doctor who just comes in and out. Right. And you, you're you actually pre-diagnosing a whole bunch of stuff because you're seeing what's going on, right? You're taking the vitals. You're on a daily basis interacting. So I think nurses are the unsung heroes of the healthcare world. Well, there's no doubt that we work in conjunction with physicians. Absolutely. We're we're not trained as physicians, but we see things before they do frequently because they are not there. And a collaborative relationship with physicians is vital. And it's, it's just so cool to be able to be in the clinic now and help patients understand how they can keep themselves out of the hospital by understanding their medicines, understanding their fluids, and understanding their diet, that it really empowers them. Now, the heart failure clinic at the hospital is not a concept that's everywhere 
in the country or in the world yet. These clinics where it's try to keep you out of the emergency room. And I know that you have such a tight relationship with the cardiologists um, in town that are, you know, an integral part. And, and you're there helping and talking back and forth to the doctors. Why is the heart failure clinic such a key part to keeping people out of the hospital? I think because the reality of healthcare is changing today. And we all know that Medicare is a finite resource, that it doesn't have a never-ending pocketbook. And uh, Medicare has decided that because health failure is the most common problem that patients are admitted to the hospital with over the age of 65, they've kind of targeted that diagnosis as one that hospitals will be penalized for if they don't provide better care. And define heart failure. Heart failure is a syndrome when the heart does not pump blood adequately to meet the needs of the body. Now, that may sound rather simple, but it encompasses a weakness of the heart muscle, either primary weakness from not contracting well enough or a weakness of relaxation where the heart muscle is stiff because you have to remember not only does the heart have to contract to create the pulse that sends blood all throughout the body, it has to relax to receive oxygenated blood from the lungs so that it can create the next heartbeat. So there's two kinds of heart failure and we categorize patients based on that when we first see them either in the hospital or in the clinic. And there's two, what are the two kinds? Systolic and diastolic heart failure. So those are the two different things that when you get your blood pressure checked, the upper and lower numbers? Uh, yes and no. Yeah, the systolic number is the number that's generated in the blood vessels when the heart contracts. Okay. And the bottom number is the pressure in the blood vessels when the heart relaxes. So yes, it is similar to that, but... It's very possible for someone to have a problem with their blood pressure and not have heart failure. Okay. So it's one of the numbers, one of the types of heart failures is when the muscle, heart muscle contracts and the other one is when it relaxes. Exactly. Okay. And, um, you know, it's fascinating to me because there's so much science and I love the science of it. And that you're doing this makes it even funnier because you said you didn't really have the strong science and math, but I just think you're brilliant at it all. When we come back from the commercial break, we'll be talking more with Pat Draper. Thank you. Success comes from not only what you know, but also who you know. Welcome back to It's All About the Questions with award-winning author, Laura Stewart. So, Pat, you were talking about the two different kinds of heart failure. And my mom has heart failure, and um, former First Lady Nancy Reagan just passed away, and they said that she died from congestive heart failure as well. It can be deadly, but it doesn't have to be a death sentence. Exactly. Can you explain more about what people need to look for and some signs of it? First of all, I think people have to understand and respect the psychological and emotional reaction to the term heart failure. People think that once they have that diagnosis, their heart's going to stop suddenly. 
and it doesn't mean that at all. It simply means that their heart muscle is not working properly. So there are things that they need to look for and things that they can do to care for themselves. First of all, they need to um, look for swelling. Swelling may be a sign of heart failure or change in their breathing. They may have difficulty breathing at night when they lie down, um, or they may have to get up suddenly after they go to sleep and fall asleep because their breathing bothers them. I remember the when my mother first got diagnosed with congestive heart failure, um, I happened to be down here visiting, and she comes in at, I don't even know what time it was in the morning, and said, your dad's taking me to the emergency room. I feel like I'm drowning, and but I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> and of course we get to the hospital and they're like she doesn't know it but she's in critical congestive heart failure the fluid overload that had been ignored um was critical and she was in the hospital for two weeks getting it maintained so that feeling of drowning oh is, exactly is a yeah because when the heart doesn't pump adequately the blood gets backed up into the lungs and so that's what gives people a feeling of breathlessness and like a sensation of drowning so how is it different from that feeling of, say, somebody who may have emphysema or asthma? I think the feeling of breathlessness may be similar, and it's up to the healthcare professional to determine whether it's from their lungs or from their heart primarily. So it's not something anybody should try to self-diagnose in any way? Never. Okay. <laughs> Good. Because, you know, my mother is always like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And I'm looking at her legs and I'm going, yeah, there's something not right. Now, you had always told me, watch their weight once somebody's been diagnosed with congestive heart failure. Why is it so critical to watch somebody's weight every couple of days? Or usually what we recommend, Laura, is that patients weigh themselves every day because a weight gain overnight typically is from fluid accumulation. And you don't want more than how many pounds? Not more than three pounds overnight or five pounds in a week, typically, is what we educate our patients for. Okay. And a pound is typically half a liter of fluid. Wow, that's that's quite a bit. Right. Yeah. So what can somebody do if they're thinking that they have congestive heart failure? Um, obviously get to a cardiologist and get to your doctor and, and get checked. Is this something that requires surgery? Uh, and I mean, I know, but, right, you know, for right. my audience. Obviously, it depends on the cause. If they don't have a cardiologist, they should see their um, regular physician because their family physician or their primary care physician is best trained to evaluate what's going on and decide when they need to be referred or they may want to get the echocardiogram, the ultrasound of the heart at that time to give them more information about what needs to be done because it's all about what's causing the heart failure. Once you know what the cause of the heart failure is, then you can help the patient understand what the treatment options are. Okay. Now, what kind of treatment options are there? It depends on the cause. Okay. They may need surgery. They, it may be from a glandular problem or a viral problem. And oh. again, that's when the referral to the specialist would come. And more often than not, they would need to be hospitalized, depending on how severe their symptoms are, for a comprehensive evaluation and treatment plan. And I know, like my mom, we manage it with medication. 
right at this point and diet and exactly trying to make her do certain good things that need to be done and that's exactly what we do in the clinic but sometimes when i see patients in the clinic I realize that their condition is such that they need to go to the hospital. And I'll tell them, look, I can help you, but only to a certain point. And it's safer for you to go to the hospital because here's what I think is going on. You may have four or five different things happening at the same time, and it's not safe for you to be treated as an outpatient. So it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of life. You can still live a really great life as long as you recognize that um, there are symptoms you need to watch out for. Exactly. And there's not only symptoms you need to watch out for, but you have to recognize that your psychological reaction has to be dealt with. Okay, so let's talk about that. Most people are in denial with heart failure, with cancer, with psychiatric issues, any type of change in their self-image. Our first reaction, because of the way we're made up, is denial. So once you give someone objective feedback that helps them understand that they need to do something about it, then it helps cut through that psychological reaction and help them deal with reality. So is well, I know from personal experience of coming to the heart failure clinic that you're always asking my mom how she is, like not just how she's feeling, but how is she like the genuine caring that comes from the heart failure clinic is like nothing I've ever seen. And and that's a tribute to you, Pat. I mean, it really is. We we're always in the cardiology offices and whatever, but the doctors have to go in and out really fast and We've built a relationship, but not everybody gets that, right? Because there aren't these heart failure clinics all over the country. Oh, well, thank you, Laura. You're being too kind. I'm just being honest. (laughs) I really think that's um, that comes from being a nurse practitioner. I think advanced practice nurses are able to lend that degree of involvement and caring with their patients because they have the luxury of time. I typically don't see more than 10 or 12 patients a day, whereas you look at the typical schedule of a cardiologist or an internist, and it may be 25 to 35 patients a day. Right. It's just totally insane. And we're very fortunate with our cardiology team that mom has here that, Mm -hmm. you know, if I get to a point where I call up, they're like, oh, got it, you know, because I've built a relationship. Right. With the medical team. Right. So how what would you advise to my listeners out there who are caregivers or perhaps going through a health crisis themselves um, to help them build a team? What are the things that they need to prepare to bring with them to a medical appointment? That's a very good question. First of all, I think they need to write down all the questions they have for their physician so that they'll be able to reference that list once they get in there because once they see that doctor, it may be only two to four times a year and they get nervous and they they forget. So write your questions down. Also, bring a family member because frequently the family member who's involved with that patient is also able to provide a source of information that otherwise isn't there. And then the patient or family member can also ask the physician and their team, how can you help me when I have issues going on? Is there 
a nurse practitioner that I can talk to, an office nurse that I can talk to. How do you want me to respond? Because it is a give and take relationship. Yeah, definitely. Because the nurse practitioner, the doctors, um, the PAs, the physician's assistants, they have a lot of other patients as well. So you need to recognize it is a partnership. Exactly. That's that's really great advice. And I, I love the recording thing, too. I've done that with a number of uh, doctor's appointments I've had myself or with my mom. Some doctors don't allow it which I find fascinating. I'm like, can I record this? Sometimes, especially if I've gone by myself, can I record this so that when I leave, I can play it for a family member or listen to it again to make sure I actually heard what you actually said. <laughs> and um, Some what, people feel very threatened by that mm, for whatever reason. Yeah. So what's a way for somebody who has to go in the appointment alone and maybe has this fear and they're getting a diagnosis of congestive heart failure or something else, um, what's something that they can do to make sure that they have the answers after they leave? Because we've all seen that, right? You you go in there, you get whatever, and then you leave and you have 10 questions. I think the biggest thing is to have a resource or an out so that they can document the answers that the physician or clinician provides because otherwise things get left unsaid, especially with a diagnosis of heart failure. It affects so many parts of your life, and especially it brings to the table certain issues that have to be addressed that may be very emotional. And as Pat said, you want to prepare your questions in advance and don't be afraid to ask them, which is what this show is all about because it's all about the questions. <laughs> we'll be right back after the news break with more from Pat Draper. And we're going to talk about becoming a triathlete at 53. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. And if you are just joining us after the news break, I'm here with my expert guest, Pat Draper, ARNP, and a critical member of my mom's healthcare team. And uh, we were talking about congestive heart failure and the questions you need to ask and the things you need to be thinking about. And now I'm going to take Pat in a different direction because I kind of teased you in the intro saying that at the age of 53, Pat began training and running triathlons which is something I'm about to turn 53 in June and I can't even remotely imagine doing. How did that come about? Well, you've got to understand, Laura, that I came to it from a long-distance running background. I'd been running long-distance since I got out of college, and I was starting to have some chronic issues with bursitis and iliotibial band problems. And um, that's on the side of the... Right, button. that's on the side of the... the IT band. Right, okay. exactly. Just pains that you get when you don't really... when you're not careful about taking care of yourself after a run. And I just thought triathlon would be a cool thing to try because if you like endurance athleticism, then you, it, it's very habit-forming. It gets in your blood and you feel so good doing it. You want to keep doing more of it. 
I've never gotten to that point <laughs> with any kind of exercise. <laughs> I used to work out five days a week, lift weights, do the whole, the whole shebang, two hours of aerobics, and I never got to that endorphin point that you're talking about. Oh. And, um, you know, you've been doing it for a number of years now, and, and right. you just spent the weekend <laughs> at triathlon <laughs> camp. Yes, I did. I, I'm one of those tri-geeks, as okay. they call us. All right. So talk to me about what is involved with running a triathlon. Well, a triathlon, for those of you who don't know, it's a multiple sport, including swim, bike, run. And it's various distances, depending on whether you're doing what they call a sprint triathlon, Olympic distance, half Ironman, which is 70.3 miles, or full Ironman, which is 140.6 and I'm, I just feel so lucky to be able to do it because it feeds my need to push myself athletically and physically to see what my limits are and give me that sense of achievement that I seem to need and that sense of accomplishment, which I crave. I mean, it's wonderful. So you're open water swimming in the ocean. Or in the river or in a lake. Okay. So you, you don't know what's underneath you, what's oh. around you. You don't know what the waves are going to be like. Or We try not to go out early in the morning because that's when the bait fish are there. <laughs> How often do you train? I train six days a week. I either take Monday or Tuesday off. Doing different parts of it or do you do doing like the different entire parts. thing? No, no, just doing different parts. Like I'll do strength training, like I'm doing a, a boot camp right now at the gym, which will give me the muscle strength to do all this stuff and then do a four to five mile run or I usually do a long bike run on the weekend, bike ride on the weekend, 20 to 30 miles, and then a long swim on the weekend as well and then pool swims in between. Now, do you only do triathlons in Florida or do you travel around the country like some people do where they just follow triathlons and Ironmans all over I, the world. I just did my first one out of state last year. I did a half Ironman in Augusta, Georgia. Okay, so that had to be different. So, you know, I, I used to watch the Tour de France all the time. Right. And in Florida, we have no hills. Except in Claremont, we have hills. Okay, so do you go training at hills? Because if Yes, we go training in Claremont, which is a big triathlon center in Florida. And there are hills there that would that are pretty steep, that made Augusta look mild. So they're man-made hills? No, no, they're real hills. We have real hills in Florida? Yeah, we do. <laughs> we do, and they have names. <laughs> okay, that's pretty wild. Yeah. Now, this um, triathlon camp that you went to, you said to me something that I thought was fascinating. You talked about fine motor skills that you need, and it never hit, it never dawned on me, but, you know, like grabbing that water bottle or even getting off your bicycle. right. Talk about those skills and how you first learned those and well, the, it's the failures. <laughs> everyone, you know, it, when they first hear about triathlon and they're not aware of the nuances of the sport, think swim, bike, run. How hard can that be? Right. But you've got to remember it's a race and the bikes are very specialized. They're either road bikes or what they call tri-bikes, which encourage you to become very aerodynamic. So you're in a hunched over position with your arms at a certain angle and your head is down. And if you're biking 20 miles an hour and you've got to stop to get a bottle of water at the service 
stops that they provide during the race, frequently you don't want to stop. You just want to reach out your arm and grab it and go. You have to be very balanced on the bike because you're clipped in. It's not like riding a bike when you were a kid and you just, you know, put your foot down and that was it. Your feet are attached to the pedals. So you've got to be able to have a strong sense of strength in your core as you reach over and you don't waver on the bike. So it's it's doing drills at a very um, slow pace on your bike so that you lo- learn those skills of being able to bend over and move that will give you the confidence to do these things in a race. What questions ran through your head when you decided to first participate in a triathlon? When I first thought about doing it, I was very intimidated. I didn't think I could do it because I had seen a local race here down in Jupiter called Loggerhead. And the emotion and the excitement was just like a long-distance marathon. And that's what appealed to me. But when I saw the way the athletes were moving with their bike and the swim and the ocean and everything, I, I was a little intimidated and I thought, I don't know if I could do it. And then the second thing that popped into my head was, I've got to do it. I want to see if I can do it. So I like challenges. So there was a really short, fine line between fear and excitement. Oh, of course. Of course. And that's what I love about triathlon. It's this little microcosm of life. It makes you discover things about yourself. It forces you to get efficient because if you're not efficient, you don't win at all. And believe me, I'm not a fabulous athlete. I'm just, you know, above average. And once in a while, I'm lucky enough to win my age group. But there's so many cool lessons. That Tell you, me one. Share us. You learn to be efficient and you learn to economy of movement. You learn to be organized, which is something that is a challenge, organized. which is can be a challenge for me because I get distracted sometimes. But it makes you break down activities into goal setting, looking at your situation and, and saying, okay, what is the issue here? What do I have to learn? What do I have to do? And it, it's just a wonderful um, analogy for all the challenges that not only happen in sport, but also in life. Do you forward think during a race or are you just focused on the next swim stroke or the next pedal or the next? Oh, it's both. Okay. You're concentrating on your stroke, on the person in front of you, on trying to avoid being kicked around a buoy. And then you're also thinking about transition when you go from the swim to the bike and then from the bike to the run because you want to be as quick as possible because it's free speed. Okay. And yet... At the same time, you're trying to anticipate any obstacles that might come in your way that could lead to an accident or a fall. That sounds like a lot you have to think about. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and and normally we talk about you need to focus on whatever you're doing at the moment, think with the end goal, but focus on immediate. And it sounds like in a triathlon, there are so many thoughts, but it also sounds like you're only thinking about the race. Are you letting go extraneous thoughts of anything else besides the race? Or are they there? I think they're there, especially if, you know, you're in the bike portion and you're, you know, it's mile 30 of a 55-mile 
ride, surely you're going to be thinking about other things. You think about your nutrition. You might be thinking about a problem at home or at work. And it gives you time to kind of mull over different issues that might help you solve that problem. Does it ever impact your performance when those thoughts go in? Oh, no. Okay, so you're lucky. You don't let it. (laughs) You don't let it. And that's where the focus on the bigger end game is, right? Right, especially in running, because I think running can be so meditative, that um, pounding, if you will. And when you're just trying to regulate your breathing and your movements with that, it's very soothing. And I've heard this from other athletes. They just kind of let their mind go. And they just, they kind of, it's a form of meditation for them. Once again, I've never, ever gotten to that point in any kind of exercise. I'm waiting for it. I keep trying. It just never seems to get there. I don't know what I'm not doing or what I need to be doing. But uh, maybe I just haven't found the right form of exercise for myself. And obviously triathlons are something that is so near and dear to you. And, and you don't just do them alone either. Oh, of course not. There's a whole tribe of people that you meet, and it becomes like a second family, which is wonderful. That's great. We'll be right back um, with more from Pat Draper. Success comes from not only what you know, but also who you know. Welcome back to It's All About the Questions with award-winning author Laura Stewart. It's so hard to believe the show is almost all over already. Um, we've talked about so much, Pat. We talked about congestive heart failure and and how what things people can do and the questions they need to ask to help them. And then we launched into this whole other you, which totally fits, actually, in my mind's eye, with your journey, with the nursing and caring and you know, really stepping out there and doing things that you're passionate about, which is the triathlons. And it's been fun knowing you as you've moved up the triathlon um, steps and stuff. Have you ever had to stop doing a triathlon? Did you ever have an anxiety reaction? I mean, what happens to people? To me, I would walk up to that beach, which is the swim is the first part. Yes. So I'd walk up and go, oh, I have to get over that wave (laughs) to get in. And then, oh, that's a really long thing. And you know, you're out there in the ocean. What happens if you... Oh, and it's a race, too. So. Yeah, it's a race. So there's thousands or hundreds of people diving in the water at the same time. If your head's not together, I would imagine it could be crippling. Yes, it can be. And as those of us in the sport like to commiserate, you know, if you're having problems on the bike, you stop or slow down. Problems on the run, you walk. But you have problems in the water, you're in trouble. Because... <laughs> because <laughs> you drown if you if you don't swim and you can't stand up obviously but uh, it's something that you think about a, a lot ahead of time and you have your own skill set to try and deal with race anxiety or swim anxiety and i got in a situation with an olympic distance swim where i went out too fast and i was swimming too fast and i was trying to keep up and I could feel that my breathing was being affected and I started wheezing and then I started panicking and I just, I dropped out because that was the safest thing to do. I didn't want to jeopardize myself and I was at the point where I couldn't flip over and just tread water or swim on my back for a while. It was beyond that point. 
And then there's people out there that oh yeah, help there's there's needs. volunteers usually on kayaks or in boats, and I just dropped out. Okay, so you said you mentioned that you have sort of a ritual that's not the word used or process that helps you um, get into and prepared for the races. Can you share a little bit about what that is for those who may not be wanting to run a triathlon, but I think it's useful for anything you're doing in life to prepare for something? Well, it's it's something that I do every day. I pray and I also use visualization. I think about myself, how I want to look in the race, how I want to complete the swim portion of the race or the bike portion or the run, and then I break it down into parts of how that's going to happen. I now try and think about what if. What if somebody hits me? Or what if I can't come up for a breath when I want to? What will my strategy be? So that if that happens, I know what I'm going to be doing. So you're reviewing worst-case scenarios, not getting stuck in the drama of it, but saying, here's what I would do. Okay, so you're preparing. Exactly. Preparing, also using visualization so that I can see how I want the outcome to be. And then taking deep breaths, because I really think that breathing exercises are nature's tranquilizers. It helps us calm down when we get anxious about something and our autonomic nervous system takes over and our heart starts pounding and we can feel ourselves get sweaty because the adrenaline is flowing. If you stop and take focused, deep breaths, at least 10 of them, five initially, but hopefully at least 10, you can feel yourself calm down, and it really, really works. I was, I'm laughing because you said, you know, focus, deep breaths, and all of a sudden I took a deep breath, <laughs> which is difficult when you're on the air because you don't want to hear the breath sound go across. But I did notice that my body calm down with just even one breath. It's nature's tranquilizer. It's wonderful. So do you do the in through the nose, out through the mouth, or do you have a particular pattern that you use? I try and take a deep breath to the count of four and then hold it until the count of 10 and then let out for six to eight counts. So in for four, Mm -hmm. hold for 10, out for six or so? Out for six or eight, ideally, but sometimes... So why that pausing? The pausing is something that I learned off a medical website as a way of taking relaxation breaths to help you sleep at night. But I've also found that it works during the day if you get anxious. It just kind of helps helps the respiratory process and the oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange. And it also helps you calm down. It blunts that adrenaline effect and focuses you in the moment. I know that I do try to get my mom to do breathing exercises with the heart failure and the emphysema and stuff like that, but it's it's sometimes hard, especially for somebody that's um, a mouth breather, to get them to take a good deep breath. So for somebody that is, say, new to breathing, conscious breathing, what would you tell them? I tell them to smell the roses and blow out the birthday candles. <laughs> and and you're serious about that. Pretend you're Exactly. Pretend exactly. you're smelling roses so that's right. a deep inhale. It's a deep inhale and then a focused exhalation and it just helps set the stage for that deep breath that they're going to be able to hold ideally for about 5 seconds and then let it out. 
So I encourage everybody who's listening just several times a day, smell the roses and blow, blow out, out the, the candles. Yeah. But hold it. After you smell the roses, hold the smell, that thought, that beautiful. And if you don't like roses, pick something else, obviously. Um, and then blow out birthday candles or candles or anything like that. Exactly. That's great. Um, so some last thoughts you like to leave the listeners with around anything we've been talking about or something else. I think the important thing through my work and my hobbies that people can take away from this is um, a greater sense of self-acceptance. And we're all very good in our own journey to be critical and focus on mistakes and focus on coulda, woulda, shoulda. But I think the beauty of this life is embracing life as it happens and in the moment so that we can let go of what isn't and embrace what is. That's beautiful. And it sounds like one of your poems because you write poetry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which hopefully we're going to get you to put a book together at some point in time. Oh, there you go. I know well, that's one of your dreams. It is. It's one it of mine is. for you too. <laughs> exactly. Well, hopefully when I, uh, when I quit working, then I can pay attention to my writing. Now, how did you come to this whole concept of, you know, that this self-acceptance, this believing in yourself and not dwelling on failures and mistakes? Through a whole lot of counseling and a whole lot of um, self-examination because um, we've all experienced loss in life. Um, as F. Scott Peck says, life is pain. And until you accept that reality, it's difficult to get beyond it sometimes. But depending on your belief system, you may or may not be able to accept that. And I faced a lot of loss early in life that was challenging with the passing of my siblings. And it forced me to look at things differently and get help through counseling to understand what the issues were so that I could realize that I'm a wonderful person and I have great goals and a lot to live for. And it helped me let go of a lot of the negativity. I love that about you. You know, you've, you've inspired me to accept a lot more and to chill out a lot more. I remember last year you said to me, Laura, you've calmed down a lot. Because <laughs> I was always so hypervigilant about yeah. everything that I was trying to prevent things from happening. And right. you got me to realize I can only do the best that I can do. Yeah, there you go. There you go. That's great. Yeah, which is not an easy concept for me. <laughs> right. It's not for most type A's. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was talking to somebody about that the other day. And my word for the year is best. Be the best that I can be, whatever it may be. I don't right. have to be perfect. Right. And I think that's really what you've, perfect you've talked is about. The, perfect is the enemy of good, and there's nothing wrong with good. Yeah. And if you tried to be perfect in every triathlon, you'd probably never finish a swim. Oh, exactly. Because you'd look at every stroke and go, that wasn't the best, most efficient stroke. Oh, exactly. Or... And I've had the best of times and the worst of times. I, I've competed at nationals. And then I I had my ego handed to me on a plate because I came in last in the age group. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And you're still first with me, Pat. Oh, well, thank you. And I'm going to nationals again this year, so we'll see what happens. All right, well, we'll be cheering you on. Thank Thank you you so much for being here with me. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Laura. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And remember, everyone, the right questions truly can change your life and the life of somebody that you care about. So if you have any questions, please tweet out to at the Laura Stewart or reach me at Laura at laurastewart.com. And let's see if we can get you the help that you need. I've got masterminds starting in the next few weeks or we can do some one-on-ones. Have a great day, everyone. And don't forget to ask questions. been listening to it's all about the questions starring laura stewart connect with laura at it's all about the and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today